You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one thing I enjoy to do from time to time is um, look at architectural designs and some of the fascinating structures that exist out there, especially as we've been praying and Lord willing, seeking to own one of our own buildings as a church one day. And I've been thinking through spaces. I've been thinking through um, lines and designs that tell a story, that even display sacred meaning and symbolism. Now, if you think about it, the garden where God dwelled with humanity, the tabernacle where the priests ministered uh, in the wilderness, the temple in Jerusalem, even the new Jerusalem, as we read of, in the book of Revelation, they all involve these intentional design elements that tell a story uh, and point us to the reality of God. Even the church, this beautiful church that we meet in, is telling a story. Uh, it's not just brick and mortar, it's doing something to us. It's intending to lift our attention upwards. Even the curves and the lines are sort of drawing us up. Also, what this building intends to do is it intends to make God feel big and you feel small. That's why we can be in the fellowship hall out there laughing and joking and having a good time. And then we walk in here and then we're like, I feel really small in God's presence. Now, this building is something. And I mean that like in kind of the old fashioned, isn't that something? But it's not everything. It's telling a story. I mean, even the stained glass, it's, it's telling the story. It's serving a purpose. But like every other thing in creation, including the best things in our lives, it is intended to draw our eyes upward higher, to be drawn to something greater, to Jesus, who is better so in the previous chapters in Hebrews, we've seen that Jesus is greater than angels. The author of Hebrews spent a significantly long time on this topic. Jesus is greater than angels. It's settled, right? He's the better human who lived and died and ascended in our place. And as we see here in chapter 3, Jesus is the greater Moses, he is greater than Moses and the ministry that he had. Moses was great, and we hear a lot about Moses in the scriptures, and all that he did for God and all that he did for God's people was absolutely necessary. But quite frankly, the ministry of Jesus is better. 
and worthy of more glory. Look with me again in verses three through six. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Jesus is better. And because of who Jesus is, and because Jesus is better, we must do three things described in this passage, if you're taking notes. We must consider Jesus, confess Jesus, and cling to Jesus. See what I did there? Okay, let's first look at consider Jesus. You and I become what we behold, for better or for worse. What has your undivided attention? What has your concentration and your focus has your heart, and what has your heart has all of you. And that's why the Bible places such an emphasis on our vision specifically, what we give our hearts to, what we give our attention to, where our eyes are focused. Even Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said this in Matthew chapter six, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Everything hinges on our vision. The kinds of people that we're becoming, our overall spiritual health, as we see here in Hebrews 3, our endurance, our focus determines our perseverance in the faith. It all hinges on where we are focused. And so the imperative, this is a command, not a suggestion, a command, the imperative of this passage is found in verse one. The author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus, which means to fix your eyes and your thoughts on him so that you may hold fast to him and the confidence and hope that he provides. And it's by concentrating on Jesus or by considering him continually that you and I will avoid the temptation to drift in our faith. By focusing on Jesus, we will avoid the temptation of giving our allegiance to lesser things. But let's get honest for a second. As many of us know, firsthand experience here, our attention is a very divided thing. Right? Give your full attention to Jesus? This seems impossible. And, and there's endless research from the last few decades that show us that our attention span is not expanding. Our attention span is shrinking moment by moment. Our ability to focus is severely impaired. And this is not just all these kids and this like next generation, us too, all of us. So Dr. Gloria Mark and her team from UC Irvine conducted this extensive research project that spanned over 20 years. And what they did was they observed people in their normal working environment trying to assess their attention. And what they found was this, in 2003, which was 20 years ago, that's crazy. In 2003, 
the average person had the ability to remain focused about two and a half minutes long. In 2012, that number decreased to about 75 seconds, which is just over a minute. In the last few years, that has now decreased to 47 seconds. So consider this with me here. Our ability to give our full attention to one single thing has been reduced to less than one minute. And then we wonder why it's so difficult to pray. And then we wonder why it's so difficult to read the Bible. And then we wonder why it's so difficult to stay engaged in our worship service. Dr. Mark was asked, um, you know, like a very simple question, I think with a very obvious answer. She was asked this, what has contributed to this change over the last 20 years? Any guesses? Screens. Her answer was a one-word answer, screens. Americans spend an average, and listen to this, this makes me sick. Americans spend an average of five hours and 25 minutes on their mobile phones daily. On average, Americans reach for their device 352 times a day. That is, on average, about every two minutes and 43 seconds. 77% of people between the ages of 18 to 24 said that their first natural impulse is to reach for their phone. And there's all kinds of reasons for this. Quoting from one uh, article, it said, checking a notification flashing across your screen can provide a small hit of dopamine, creating a sense of reward that keeps you coming back for more. So you're getting a little hit of dopamine. You're doped up as you're looking at your phone. Just a little sense of thrill, a little sense of high, just a little sense of But also, it's based on habits that are being formed. So think about this. Every time you pause and you check your device, what your brain is doing is it's having to shift gears from what it was previously doing to now a new task. And in the long run, quote, the more you engage in task switching, the more your brain wants to wander and look for a new thing. So this is crazy. This is what it's saying. Even if you're... Even if you don't have something actively distracting you at the moment, your brain will look for something to distract you. We can't blame a distracting world. Your brain is moving in that direction. Quote, so your brain gets used to a constant diversion and then engages in them out of habit. It's why you might find yourself mindlessly checking your phone even when you're doing something else that's important to you. That is probably why you won't be able to sit through this 30-minute sermon without checking your phone at least once. Checking the score, checking an email, eyes are on you in the back with a smile, eyes are on my kids right now, I'm watching you. So as much as this seems like a losing battle, first of all, we are all in the same boat, no one's being picked on. We are all in the same boat. And as much as this seems like a losing battle right now, and it seems like something is just going to get worse, and like our attention is just going to continue to decline year after year, and we've got no chance of giving our full attention to Jesus, that we're just destined to live these tragically um, distracted lives. But the hope that we have here 
The hope that Hebrews offers us is that we are not left on our own. And we know this because the first word of our passage today begins with, therefore. That is a connecting word, which means that this call to give our full attention to Jesus, which seems like an impossible task, this call to give our full attention to Jesus is in light of all that comes before it in Hebrews. And the previous portion here in Hebrews tells us that we have help, as we saw last week, and not a trivial help, but a powerful help. Help from Jesus, who is both fully God and fully human, which means that he is one who has faced distractions just like we face distractions in our lives. Help from someone who knows the struggle of being human in a world that is constantly trying to divide our attention, constantly trying to get our attention off the most important things. Help from the only one who has ever remained focused and faithful to God and now, out of grace, helps us in our need. You and I have help from the one who is described here as the apostle and high priest of our confession, which means the one who represents God to us and represents us to God. Look at me again in verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, hang on to that phrase right there. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. So we consider Jesus, we fixate on Christ, only as those who have been made holy and now share in Jesus' heavenly calling. So put your theological thinking caps on here for a minute. Well, all morning, actually, I guess. The, the ministry of Moses, that was weird, but like the whole morning. Um, focus, okay. The ministry of Jesus is superior to Moses. What does this mean? So the ministry of Moses included the law of God. If you know anything about the law of God from the scriptures, the law had very specific instructions about what a life of holiness or set-apartness was to look like. So where our minds automatically go is the Ten Commandments, the things that we do and, and don't do. But also we think about the 16, uh, 613 uh, commands that we find in the Old Testament, rules regarding cleanliness and morality and social justice and how to engage even things like food, do's and don'ts, things you must do, things you must avoid, and so on. So the ministry of Moses was absolutely important, and you're not going to hear the writer of Hebrews say anything other than that. The ministry of Moses was absolutely important because through his ministry and through the covenant that he represented, known as the Mosaic Covenant, people became aware of the holiness of God. How do we know God is holy? Well, the law shows us. And what the law did was it shows us what it, what it requires to remain in a relationship with a holy God like our God. But Jesus is better. And here's how. The ministry of Moses drew our attention inward to our own performance, with our focus on, well, these are the things that I need to do, and these are the things that I shouldn't do. Which, by the way, sounds like a lot of religion today. 
which by the way, unfortunately, sounds like even a lot of Christianity today. My faith becomes inward focus about the things I have to do and the things that I shouldn't do for God. So how's the ministry of Jesus better? Well, the ministry of Jesus does not draw our attention inward, but our attention outward in faith to the one who is greater, to Jesus and all that he has done. Moses introduced us to what God requires. This is what God requires of you, but Jesus alone fulfilled those requirements on our behalf. The ministry of Moses brought condemnation and guilt for all the ways that we fail God. The ministry of Jesus brought cleansing for our sins through his sacrificial death and his resurrection. Moses showed the people what a holy life ought to look like. But Jesus alone brings his people into that holiness. So let me ask you a hard-hitting question here. Are you a holy person? Would you describe yourself as a holy person? And what Hebrews tells us is that through faith in Jesus, the shocking answer is yes. It's so absurd, only the scriptures could make a claim like this. Through faith in Christ, the answer is yes. And through trusting in this Jesus, you have also now come to share in what he describes here as a heavenly calling. Heaven calling. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Philippians chapter 3. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So our focus and our vision is not limited to the present earthly distractions around us. But is now as lofty as heaven above you are not destined, Hebrews is showing us, to live a distracted, divided life. You are now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being drawn upward by all of heaven's resources. You are not doomed to an ever-shrinking attention span. But now your mind and heart is forever tethered to heaven above. How are you going to undo that? Consider Jesus. Fixate wholly on him. Don't entertain distractions. Refuse to settle for anything, even religious things, that are less than the perfect ministry of Jesus. Don't settle for anything less. Felt like the end of the sermon, didn't it? Point two. <laughs> Confess Jesus. Verse one. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our what? Confession. The word here, confession, is probably going to mean different things to us. To some, it brings the idea of a set of doctrinal beliefs. Well, I hold to this historic confession. To others, it means fessing up. Right? The idea of making a confession, you've done something that you shouldn't do, and now you're asking for forgiveness. And these things aren't wrong. But here in Hebrews, and for the first century Christian church, the meaning of confession was a public declaration. It was a public declaration, a profession 
of faith. Consider what Paul would say to the Romans in chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you see this interchange here? Historically, Christian faith was seen as something extremely public. That's why the first act of obedience to the faith is a very public thing, which is being baptized. It is going public with your faith. It is a public declaration. I identify not with me, the old me, but with Christ. Francis Schaeffer, he once wrote this, one cannot explain the explosive power of the early church. And we're always like, why was the early church so powerful? Listen, one cannot explain the explosive power of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. The orthodoxy of doctrine and the orthodoxy, orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. So the personal inner belief in the heart, but also that public announcement of faith go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. And to try to separate the two is essentially to live a divided life. But as we know today, sadly, I think Christianity has gone from being a public witness to being reduced down to simply personal beliefs that are held by an individual, from public confession to private convictions. And we hear things like, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, which then leads to Christianity being about personal expression and my own personal interpretation. Well, I like to think of God this way. And then my own personal walk. And I was thinking about the Depeche Mode song. My own personal Jesus. Two people got that. That's awesome. So for many of us, Christianity is reduced down to something that we keep to ourselves. We don't want to make a big fuss about it. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable by our faith. We definitely don't want to be seen as strange by the people around us. We don't want to be considered a fanatic. We don't want to be seen as intolerant if we hold to these beliefs. We don't want to step on anyone's toes in the workplace or in school. And, and what we don't realize is that impulse is actually a very secular mindset. John Tyson, a pastor in New York, put it very succinctly when he said this. The goal of secularism is the privatization of your faith. What is secularism seeking to do in culture? To try to get you to keep your faith to yourself. In the Western world, and I'm not speaking globally because I, I can't do that, but I think in the Western world, a lot of people are fine with you having Christian faith. A lot of people are fine with you being a Christian. In fact, you're going to have a hard time finding a person that is absolutely opposed to you having personal Christian beliefs so long, and here's the kicker, so long as that they're lived out in secret and they don't spill over into your public life. So long as you don't apply it, so long as you don't display it, so long as you don't speak about it. But here's the thing, that's not Christianity. 
That's something, but it's not Christianity. Over the last decades, there have been a number of politicians from both sides of the aisle, by the way, that have been asked about really important, morally charged topics like marriage and immigration and abortion and these sorts of things. And you'll always hear the same thing. Well, personally, because I'm a Protestant or personally, because I'm a Catholic, because of my faith, I personally feel this way. But because of my public role, I think this way. You realize how absurd that statement is. Number one, as if that is possible. And number two, as if that's desirable. There is nothing more exhausting, and maybe you can attest to this. There's nothing more exhausting and life draining than trying to live a double life. Trying to juggle like a public persona and a private faith. Consider this with me. Could you imagine treating any other relationship in your life like this? Could you imagine trying to explain to your spouse or to your children or to your best friend that you prefer that no one in your life know about them? How absolutely impossible it would be to carry out a meaningful, joyful, loving relationship with someone you never told anything about. This sounds so crazy. It's, it sounds made up. This is an absolutely true story. I knew of a couple that kept a marriage a secret for an entire year. And any time that family members would come visit the home, the one spouse's objects would be hidden away in secret. So the home would be completely reset to appear like it was just one individual living there for an entire year. Big shocker, the marriage didn't last. It ended very quickly and abruptly in divorce. And yet, think about this. We, we wonder why persevering in our faith in Jesus is such a struggle, why we keep all of his things hidden out of sight. In the final verse, we see confidence in Jesus is related to, quote, verse 6, boasting in our hope. Boasting. Think about the ways that we boast about the things that are important in our life. You boast about the people that you love, and you love the people that you boast about. The more that you love them, the more that you will boast about them, and you'll find the more that you boast about them, the more that you grow in your love for them. It just comes with the territory. Now remember, Hebrews is being written to a church, first century church, that is under severe pressure, and many of these people are being tempted to walk away from Christian faith and revert back to their prior religious experience, which for them was Judaism. But I think the application for us today is this. You will have an impossible time remaining focused and faithful to a Jesus that you have squeezed into your private life. Like, I'm not a prophet, but for the one who has squeezed Jesus into their private life, I can see you 10 years down the road. It's bleak. It is not a strong, robust Christian faith. It's barely hanging on by a thread, if that. 
Your heart can't delight in a Jesus that you fit in your pocket. And your strength will be zapped. All your energy, all your energy will go to focusing on living a constantly divided life. And it's the Jesus of our confession that gives us grace and strength to persevere. What is the key to lasting? What is the key to persevering in the faith? Make much of Jesus in your life. Make Christ your endless boast. Third and finally, cling to Jesus, verse six. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are his house, we are his church, we are his architectural design, we are his temple. Now, if you wanna hear more about this, I would recommend that you show up to our Discovering class that will be at 10.45 today in the upstairs in Knox room. We're gonna talk about the theme of temple in the scriptures, but suffice it to say this. We are his house, according to Hebrews, if, and that is a glaring if that I'm going to let linger here for a minute. If we hold fast, if we cling in courage to what we have in Jesus. There's a story from history about a famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondin, who in the 1800s spent a lot of time 15 stories above the Niagara Falls on a thin rope. And he would draw these massive crowds that would come watch him risk his life. Why do we like things like that? And one day, he turns to the crowd and he says, would you like me to walk across this tightrope with someone on my back? And everyone starts to cheer, yes. And then naturally, he turns to the audience and says, would anyone like to volunteer? Strange, it got quiet. No one volunteered. So the honor, the privilege, fell to his manager, who I can imagine is like, I did not sign up for this. So the manager was terrified. Blondin was confident as ever. And so they began to walk across this tightrope 15 stories above the bottom. And the manager was clinging to Blondin. Blondin was a very competent tightrope walker, known for this sort of thing. He knew what he, he, knew what he was doing. But suddenly, a gust of wind hit them and forced Blondin to shift his weight abruptly. And feeling that shift occurring underneath him, what the manager naturally did, and maybe you felt this on like the back of a motorcycle before, what he did was he leaned the other direction to sort of counterbalance. And it happened again and almost plunged the both of them over the edge. And the story goes that Blondin stops right in the middle of the tightrope and over the loud, roaring sound of the Niagara Falls, yells at the man on his back, stop, I don't need your help. And he told him, if you want to live, if you want us to live, then you need to simply cling to me. What is our response to this greater salvation that Jesus Provides. How do we engage the work that Jesus has accomplished for us? It is simply clinging to him and all that he has provided for us. I love the way that the psalmist put it in Psalm 63. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. See, the good news of the gospel of grace 
is that as we cling to Christ, what we come to realize is that it's actually him that's holding fast to us. I remember when our kids were really, really small and they were just learning to speak, they would often put their hands up and they would say, hold you, hold you, which sounds like I'm gonna hold you, but really is just a way of saying, hold me. What is faith? Faith is the simple call, hold you, with the deep confidence that it's actually him holding us. We cling to Christ as a small child clings to their parent. But the beauty of this picture is at the end of the day, it's actually him supporting us. I'm gonna close with a line from one of my favorite songs that we, uh, one of my favorite hymns that we sing, and it goes like this. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold you fast. Consider Jesus, confess Jesus, Cling to Jesus, and he will hold us fast through it all. Amen? Let's respond in faith. Father, we thank you.